to NeuroPodcases, a neuroscience podcast created for medical students. To get the most out of this episode, we recommend downloading the supplementary case notes which are available on Vital. Here you'll find more information about the case, including history, examination and investigation findings. We hope you enjoy listening. Hello, I'm here today with Dr Richard Ellis, one of the consultant neurologists working at the Walton Centre. And we're just going to go through a typical case that might uh, come into any general neurology clinic. Uh, so, Dr. Ellis, we've got a 65-year-old left-handed man who's presenting complaints of tremor. His wife first noticed it when they were sitting on the sofa and feels that it's becoming more noticeable in the last six months. It mainly affects his right hand, so functioning, he's functioning well at the moment. And the only other thing he's noticed is that he's a little slower walking the dog and can have the occasional stumble. When you ask about it, his colleagues have found it harder to hear him on the phone, but he's not finding any particular bother at all. His past medical history includes type 2 diabetes, which is diet controlled, and he takes no medication. He works as a project manager, drinks a bottle of wine on the weekend, and is a non-smoker. So, thinking about tremor and your approach to it, what would be the important features in the history that you'd be interested in at this point? Okay, so... um this, this chap's presented with tremor, and I think the, the most important thing is to try and elicit from that history or to take from what we already know. We've got a uh, suggestion that this is a progressive disorder. It's gotten worse over a six-month period. It's asymmetrical. It's affecting his right hand mainly. We would want to know, is it having any impact on the left side at all, or has it strictly stayed on that right hand? Um, I'd want to know a bit more about his family history. Has anybody else in the family uh, got a tremor? Um, I want to know, are there any uh, particular actions or situations where the tremor is worse or the tremor disappears? That's important in establishing whether this is a, an action tremor or a postural tremor or a rest tremor. The suggestion is from this history that it might be a rest tremor. The wife has noticed it when they're not doing anything. It's very important with all... Uh, assessments like this to try and work out well what's the impact on his function it sounds as though this gentleman's functioning relatively well the only thing that they notice is that perhaps he's a bit slower walking the dog perhaps this alludes to uh, bradykinesia that he's slowing down um, the other thing is are there any other associated features any other symptoms that might seem unconnected so a review of systems would be good here to just try and establish is there anything else going on that might be connected okay so moving on from the history onto the examination uh, on examination this gentleman has a resting tremor present in the right hand when he's distracted with some extension into his right leg as well which the family and him, he didn't notice himself there's some slowness when he's asked to open his hand uh, as fast as he can with the right hand being slower than the left and the movements also seem to get smaller as well as slower as time goes on there's evidence of quagwilling rigidity on the right side and evidence of a re-emergent tremor as well. When asked to walk, his gait is shuffling and he's also got evidence of a quiet uh, voice and his face doesn't appear to have much expression to it. In terms of the classical neurological exam, his power is intact, his reflexes are fine and his sensation is also normal. So based on this history and examination together, have you any thoughts about what the condition would be and are there any specific exam techniques that you think are useful when considering this condition? Okay, so the, the examination here reveals a few things which are really helpful in taking us forwards. 
we establish it as a rest tremor. So we're already thinking along the lines of something like Parkinson's, or Parkinsonism at least. It's asymmetrical. Again, Parkinson's disease tends to present asymmetrically. Um, as it progresses, it may uh, develop symptoms on both sides. You would normally expect that within uh, three years of their, their onset of symptoms. There's also a suggestion in there that he's got bradykinesia, so difficulty, the slowness of hand opening and closing. So true bradykinesia is a cardinal feature of Parkinson's disease. When patients are asked to finger tap, so their index finger and thumb together as big and as quick as they can, what happens is that the amplitude of that movement gets smaller and smaller. So that's true bradykinesia, and there's a suggestion of that in this history. Another feature of Parkinson's is rigidity, and as I mentioned, there's cogwheeling here. So this is the sort of uh, variable uh, tone when moving the wrist passively. Um, again, a feature of uh, rigidity with tremor superimposed upon it. There's a mention that the tremor is re-emergent. So this is uh, looking at the arms outstretched in front of the patient. People who have got a, an essential tremor, that tremor will be present as soon as they put their arms up. In Parkinsonism, Parkinson's disease, there's a delay. So they bring the arms up and after a couple of seconds, the tremor emerges in the affected side. Assessment of the gait is really important, and it mentions that he's got a shuffling gait, which again is consistent with bradykinesia. Patients who have got Parkinsonism, also on, ex on inspection, will tend to have uh, reduced facial movements and uh, sort of mask-like appearance, so the Parkinsonian uh, fasces. And his speech, we go back to the history, his colleagues are finding it harder to hear him. One of the perhaps quite early features of uh, Parkinson's is the effect on speech and so first they lose tone they lose prosody of their speech and it becomes uh, more monotonous and quiet and slowed so what we call bradyphrenia the rest of the examination is normal and uh, some of the important negatives there he's got normal eye movements he's got no pyramidal features he's got no cerebellar signs these are all important uh, negative features because their presence might point us towards one of the other Parkinsonian syndromes. In summary, we've got evidence of bradykinesia, rigidity, and a rest tremor, which is asymmetrical in a patient. And this is pointing towards a diagnosis of idiopathic Parkinson's disease. Great, okay. So is there anything other else that you'd consider important when assessing a patient with, when you're considering Parkinson's disease? as a diagnosis. We've touched on a few things, but I'm sure that there might be more. Yeah, so there's the UK Parkinson's Brain Bank criteria, which set out the important inclusion and exclusion criteria. And we've mentioned the inclusion criteria, those cardinal features, bradykinesia, rigidity, rest tremor, and postural instability is another feature. Okay. There are also a load of important uh, exclusion criteria, and these all reflect red flags that might point us towards an alternative diagnosis, perhaps one of the other um, Parkinsonian syndromes. So these are things like uh, early use of a wheelchair, for example. This might point us towards a condition like progressive supranuclear palsy. The same applies for a patient who's falling within two years of the onset of their symptoms. Um, cerebellar signs might point us towards multiple system atrophy, 
for example. So these are all the sort of things that I'm thinking about when I'm seeing this patient. Are there any of these exclusion criteria that uh, are leading me away from a diagnosis of idiopathic Parkinson's disease and perhaps to one of these other Parkinsonian syndromes? The other thing to consider um, in this is to explore a little bit further into the history um, about non-motor features. Now we've talked so far really about the motor science, okay. Parkinson's disease is associated with over 40 other symptoms and these are what we call the non-motor symptoms and they're pretty diverse but they're often very troublesome for patients and should be considered as part of that routine review at first and at subsequent follow-up. So non-motor symptoms can include things like mood disturbance, so typically anxiety and depression. Um, it might include things like constipation, and that can sometimes be one of the prodromal symptoms of Parkinson's that patients will recall happening years before they ever develop the motor features. Same goes for that mood disturbance. Other things that we sometimes see, anosmia, so loss of sense of smell could be one of those early symptoms. Again, that could be really troublesome to patients as it also affects taste. Pain is a very common symptom in patients who have got Parkinson's. And again, it's important to try and recognise this um, so that patients can be managed holistically. And sleep disturbance. Sleep disturbance, uh, such as a REM sleep disorder, this is people who lose the ability to suppress movements during the dream phase of their sleep, so they act out and lash out in their sleep. That could be really troublesome for the patient in terms of disrupting their sleep architecture. It can also be really disruptive to a bed partner. REM sleep disorders are thought to um, predict the onset of a neurodegenerative condition, whether that's Parkinson's or one of the other degenerative disorders uh, is unclear at that stage. But again, managing that and understanding it's really important. Okay, so in terms of confirming your diagnosis of Parkinson's disease here, you've mentioned a few other um, conditions that you know are mimics or things you might consider. Are there, are there any definitive tests you can do in clinic or if you were to see this patient in, in the emergency department and was considering um, doing some tests, is there anything you'd recommend? Okay, so it's important to recognise that uh, idiopathic Parkinson's disease is a clinical diagnosis. It's based on the history, those positive examination findings, and the absence of important negative findings. With that in mind, though, there are still some things that I might consider in specific groups to try and uh, help me uh, rule out important mimics or to confirm my thoughts. So, for example, patients who are under 50, I want to really drill down into that family history. I want to check things like their copper profile, exclude Wilson's, because that's a treatable condition. Okay. In terms of things like scans, obviously, you may have come across something called a DAT scan, which is a dopamine transporter scan. It is not any better than a physician at diagnosing Parkinson's. It's not something that we routinely use and it's not something that should be routinely used. Um, one of the really important things, I guess, in the clinic environment rather than the emergency department is response to treatment. So that is in the, uh, the uh, UK 
Parkinson's brain bank criteria, response to levodopa. So in idiopathic Parkinson's disease, they should have an excellent response to levodopa, whereas some of the other syndromes tend to have a less favourable response. So, so the clinical diagnosis has been made in clinic, and how would you start in terms of management now for this gentleman? Okay, so so management, uh, we can look at conservative management for this patient involving other people, so involving the multidisciplinary team. Um, so that might be the physiotherapist to help with his walking. It might be the occupational therapist to see if there's anything at home that might help him around the house. In terms of pharmacological treatment, we tend to start this at the point that the patient feels that their symptoms are disabling. Okay, That's a very open-ended starting point, but it's very much at the discretion of the patient in the following discussion about the types of uh, pharmacological treatment available. The first-line treatment in, in all patients is levodopa. There used to be a school of thought that said, uh, young patients, we start with, with dopamine agonists to avoid motor fluctuations early. That has largely now been debunked. So levodopa is a starting place for treatment. So that's either Cinemet or Madapar. Starting on usually 12.5 slash 50 milligrams, one tablet three times a day, and increasing it according to uh, response and any side effects that they may get. Um, levodopa is a really commonly prescribed medication. It's uh, a very safe medication. One of the most common side effects is nausea, and that's something that I would typically warn patients about. Other options beyond levodopa would include dopamine agonists. So dopamine agonists mimic the effect of levodopa, um, and again, can be a useful adjunct therapy to levodopa, where in particular, as the disease progresses, the response to levodopa diminishes and they get motor fluctuations. Dopamine agonists can help us there. Other medications really are around boosting the effect and duration of the levodopa. So drugs like MAOB inhibitors, so seladuline, rosagiline, or COMPT inhibitors, so entacapone, for example. These all boost the effect of the levodopa. So we've been following the 65-year-old man in clinic for the last four years with an annual review. His medications are adjusted as his disease progresses, and he's now on three medications for his Parkinson's. These include Cobenaldopa 25-100, two tablets four times a day, Rosagiline 1 milligram, and Pramipexol 88 micrograms three times a day. He's doing fine generally, but you're contacted when he's admitted acutely to his local hospital with confusion and agitation that came on over 48 hours. When you review him as an inpatient, he's currently off his feet and appears to be hallucinating. So I think this is a situation that crops up fairly commonly in, um, in general medicine. And where would you start in assessing a Parkinson's patient who's acutely deteriorated like this? Okay, so this is, this is a really common scenario uh, that we often come across uh, when we're visiting our, our acute trusts. Um, a couple of uh, just general points first. Um, here's presenting really with what sounds like a delirium. He's agitated and confused. This sounds very different to the type of longer-term cognitive problems that we associate with Parkinson's disease and Parkinson's disease dementia, for example. This sounds as though it's been an acute deterioration. So this has happened relatively quickly over a short period of time. More often than not, and this is common across a number of neurodegenerative conditions and 
frailty. As we get older, our ability to compensate um, for other physiological insults is diminished, and Parkinson's disease is exactly the same. So common things to look out for in these patients are, are they unwell? Do they have an infection somewhere? Uh, that could be a chest infection, it could be a urinary tract infection, something else which is causing the patient to decompensate. Again, in Parkinson's, we talked about some of those non-motor symptoms. So constipation, that's another really common cause of delirium in patients with Parkinson's and again in older people. So these are the kind of things I'm looking out for. Other things might be urinary retention, pain, and, and, and new medication uh, that might have been added, not necessarily for their Parkinson's, but for other things. So, for example, um, any sedatives, for example, to help with sleep, um, painkillers, so anything opiate-based, or tramadol, for example, these might all be trigger points for uh, causing this deterioration that we're seeing. So a review of all of those things, a review of their medications, uh, reconciling that with the GPs to see, is there anything else that's changed that might have set this all off? Um, like I said, this is very different to what we would expect to see with uh, Parkinson's disease dementia. Okay. The first thing that we normally get asked is, can we reduce their medications? Can we do something about their medications? More often than not, the answer is, leave the medications alone. This is a transient problem uh, affecting the patient. Their underlying Parkinson's is basically unchanged. It might be that there's a role for reviewing their medications down the line, but they need to recover from this episode first. So this gentleman recovers well from his acute illness and he's keen to consider advanced therapies. What do advanced therapies for Parkinson's disease consist of and how can they help? Okay, so there's three, three main f uh, forms that advanced therapies can take. Um, and there's no sort of right or wrong time these could be introduced, but typically we're looking at patients who are in that motor fluctuation stage. Um, so the three are apomorphine, duodopa, and deep brain stimulation. And if we take each of those in turn, so apomorphine is not morphine, it's not related to morphine. It is a very potent uh, dopamine agonist, um, and it's delivered subcutaneously. So it's delivered via a pump, usually, or uh, an injection pen um, under the skin, and it works very quickly. Um, so it's very good at uh, patients who have off periods and getting them out of that very quickly. Uh, by delivering it continuously, you are able again to try and iron out some of those more severe motor fluctuations. Duodopa applies the same principle, really. It's about continuous delivery of uh, dopaminergic stimulation. So duodopa is delivered via a uh, percutaneous uh, jejunostomy. Um, and it's a, a form of levodopa gel, and it's delivered at a continuous rate to be absorbed. The other one is deep brain stimulation. So deep brain stimulation involves uh, a surgical procedure to place electrodes into the basal ganglia and to try and restore normal circuitry. So by disrupting part of the circuits of the basal ganglia, you can try and return more normal function. What it allows you to do again is to reduce the amount of medications that the patient might be taking in order to uh, 
again, iron out some of those motor fluctuations. The criteria for who you choose for what type of therapy is quite complicated, but generally speaking, for a patient to be considered for something like deep brain stimulation, they would usually have to be under the age of 70. Uh, they shouldn't have significant cognitive problems, um, and they, they need a, a, a full multidisciplinary workup uh, with input from the psychologist and psychiatrist to look for any evidence of significant mood disturbance because these can be worsened by deep brain stimulation. So uh, these patients tend to be younger and to have uh, more problems with motor fluctuations but less problems in terms of psychiatric features, less problems with cognitive concerns. Apomorphine can be used uh, sort of across the spectrum of these patients usually. Again, there are risks and side effects with dopamine agonists. This can include things like impulse control disorders, um, and it's really important to keep an eye out for those in patients. Duodopa tends to be for people who are perhaps not DBS candidates, or perhaps have tried apomorphine but not tolerated it for whatever reason, and they might be considered for duodopa. Hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Look out for more podcast episodes coming out shortly.